Welcome to the Succession Stories podcast. I'm Lori Barkman. I work with business owners to maximize value, create options for the future, and be happy in your next. I'm excited to share the What's Next series as part of Succession Stories. These conversations spotlight the theme of transitions. Changes can come at you unexpectedly or be planned. Are you ready? After all, in business and life, succession is about transitions and how you embrace what's next matters. What if your company could unlock millions from your data? If you're interested in exploring how machine learning and other frontier technologies can be a catalyst for revenue or increase profits in your business, let's connect. Our process helps create an identified solution in just two days. Go to small.big.com, that's smalldotbig.com slash contact to start the conversation. Be sure to subscribe to Succession Stories and tag us in social media to help other business owners discover the show. Dr. J.T. Kosman is the CEO of Protected by AI and a global expert in artificial intelligence and psychology. His unique story began as a homeless nine-year-old in New York City. During the early part of his career, JT dedicated his life to rescuing others as a paramedic, deep sea diver, police, and US Army Special Forces. Eventually, that led to a career using data intelligence to protect lives. In the corporate sector, JT developed solutions for large companies like Digitas, Time Inc., and Samsung. Now, as a global entrepreneur, his focus is enabling small and mid-sized companies to use data to protect and transform their businesses. It's an incredible what's next story that is sure to inspire. JT Kasman, welcome to Succession Stories. You have a super interesting background. You're a data scientist, you're a mathematician, and a psychologist, which is a really interesting combination. You're widely regarded as one of the world's leading experts in applied artificial intelligence and cognitive computing. And I know you don't get that from the bottom of a Cracker Jack box. <laughs> and in 2018, I think it was, you, you launched a company. You've got an incredible career journey. I'm excited to welcome you to the show. So how are you today? I am excited to be here. Thanks, Lori. I've been looking forward to the conversation, and I'm doing great today. Uh, <laughs> Joe Biden was just sworn in yesterday. The nation is getting back on track. All is good in the universe. All is good in the universe. Let's start by talking about you, because this show is about transitions, and you've had a number of them in your career, which I'm sure everyone is going to be really curious to hear about. Let's talk about your career journey. Where did you grow up? How did you get started? What influenced you along the way? Oh, boy, you want to go that far back. <laughs> uh, my friends tell me I'm probably about 180 years old if you count by mileage and not by years. I started out actually as modest as you can. I was a homeless kid. I grew up on the streets of New York. From the time I was nine years old, I moved out onto the streets and lived in the alleys, the subways, the libraries of New York City. Uh, until I was about 12 years old, 12 years old-ish, I took an apartment with a couple of friends and lived like that until I was 16. And 16 is when I escaped from New York, just like the movie, and made my way out west. And that's sort of where things began, was professionally for me at least, was my journey west and ending up eventually in Nevada, of all places, in Las Vegas, actually. I was heading for California. It took me about three and a half, almost four months to get that far. And I, I was just wrung out. 
And so I just settled in Las Vegas. I enrolled myself in the Southern Nevada Vocational Technical Center in lieu of high school and learned this burgeoning new field called computers. And I actually became a computer. That was my first job. That's back in the days before computer was a thing and a machine. It was actually, well, it was also. It was a title. It was a job title. It was a title. It was my job was computer. And I learned to code on an IBM 1620 with Hollerith punch cards. And this was back in the 70s. And yeah, kind of started there and, and moved forward from then. Wow. Can I ask you a couple of questions about being homeless at nine? Mm. What happened? Where were your parents? Well, when my parents lit me on fire for the third time, I thought it probably wasn't the best way to stay warm. <laughs> so oh I thought gosh. it might be safer to, to go to the streets. And that was, yeah, that was uh, kind of unusual circumstances. Uh, oh, one of those wow. Monday night movies of the week kind of a things. Wow. So you, you had a, a pretty tough childhood living on the street subways, wherever you could. How did you, how were you so independent at such a young age? Yeah, I I don't see it as having been that tough. It was, it was just what life was. You know, there are are children around the world right now who have it far tougher than I had. it. I had jobs, you know, I worked in a butcher shop and I worked uh, selling newspapers and I had some money and I could get food and I could find warm places to sleep. And yeah, it just, it wasn't people, when I tell that, you know, sort of abstractly that, oh my gosh, it must have, that wasn't that bad. And it just, it was my life it, and it's what it was. And yeah, I, and I'll tell you, I once, in a very uncharacteristic moment, I mentioned to my, my wife, Angie, told her, you know, I am who I am in spite of how I grew up. And she said, that is absolutely not true. And she's right, right? It helped form me and shape me into who I am. So how do you lament it? How do you cry about it? If you're happy with where you are, then you get to decide to some extent, to a large extent, I think, if not maybe to an entire extent, what you do with it. It's the fundament of Stoic philosophy, right? We control those things we can control. We don't control those things we can't. And what can we control? Nothing, just us, just our attitudes, our beliefs, our behaviors, our actions, what we do. And I took that very seriously, starting from a very young age. Honestly, at about nine, I decided you know, if it's to be, it's up to me. I control my fate, my destiny, and I have to make some decisions and decide what I'm going to do with what's presented to me. And you did, and you moved out West and you got an education and you got a career as a computer. So let's pick up the story from there. That really began your, is your passion and understanding data and working with this newfangled world. You mentioned IBM products and so you said this was in the 70s? In the 1970s, yeah. Okay. Mid, late 70s, yeah. Okay, so what happened from there? Oh, boy. From there, I took a really hard left, and I decided to change things up again. I was working as a computer, and by then, I was, you know, 18 years old and and working as a computer, and then it was not quite as glorious as it is now. You were in the basement, and it was noisy, and it was just... The cacophony, the, the the volume, I can still hear it, I think. And it was hot and it was nasty and nobody wanted to talk. It was terrible. And so I did that for a little while and I still had other jobs because it also paid terribly. And so I was working as a busboy, as a dishwasher at a restaurant, busboy and dishwasher. I worked at a construction site. And so finally, one day I just kind of had enough of it and it coincided with I fell and I broke my arm really badly. And broken, I think, like 16 or 18 places, really shattered it while I was at work. And so the workers' compensation program said if I went back 
and I actually took some college classes, they would give me an extra, I think it was $100 a month, which at the time, that was a lot of money. Sure. And so I went to the community college and I took uh, two courses, one in psychology, which kind of planted a seed there, and one to become an EMT, an emergency medical technician. And so by the time I graduated, I was an EMT, excuse me, by the time my arm healed, I had graduated, I was an EMT. And so I went to work for the local ambulance company and loved it. And I went on to become a paramedic eventually. I was sort of interning and working with a very senior paramedic. We got a call one morning for, I thought it would be the greatest day of my life because my mentor, Jay, tells me, get in the ambulance. We have a call and get in the front. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is, you know, I've been promoted. And we showed up at the MGM Grand Hotel, which was on fire. And at the time, it was the largest hotel fire in history, in American history and lost 88 people uh, oh, no. in the fire. And because Jay was the first paramedic, we did all the recon and we, we recovered 86 of the people who perished. We treated over 350 people. And so the city of Las Vegas sent me to paramedic school in Los Angeles. And so here I was a paramedic a month after my 19th birthday. And uh, I went back to Las Vegas and I worked as a paramedic. And so I, without giving you the torturous extension from that, I went from being a paramedic to in Nevada, I eventually, and California, and I eventually moved back to New York, and I worked as a paramedic in, here in New York for a while, and then I met some folks who were commercial deep sea divers, that sounded fun, and they had <laughs> a need for medics on the dive rig, so I became a commercial diver, you know, the hard hat with the, you know, hundreds of feet underwater and working out of chambers and that sort of a thing and doing underwater construction and welding and explosives and electronics and did all that sort of a thing for a couple of years, traveling around the world, had a bunch of fun doing that. And uh, eventually I went back to Nevada and met this girl and uh, went to a party, met the girl. And we've now been married for almost 35 years. Literally, I came home that day and said, you know, I just met the girl I'm going to marry. And, and uh, love at first sight. Yeah, yeah, absolutely was. And she, she eventually relented and said yes. Uh, it took a while. But then we go on our honeymoon, we get back. And what do you know, the paramedic company is closed. And so they closed? A new life, a new job. <laughs> and, uh, so I went to become a cop. They were testing for police officers. And so I took the test. I did really well and became a cop. As part of my duties, I was also a coroner's investigator for a while. And then I did undercover work on street crimes and that kind of a thing. And that was all fun too. And during this time, I'm trying to finish college. And my beautiful wife, my brilliant wife, has her degree by now. She's a bachelor of science in nursing. And uh, by the way, and I have to get this in here, Angie has been an ICU nurse for 40 years now. Wow. I've been begging her to retire for about 25 years. She was just about to a year ago in January before COVID, and she can't bring herself to retire. So 40 years a nurse. She still does bedside care. She's still She's in there. so dedicated. That's amazing. It's, it's, it's just amazing. That's beautiful. And so getting back to my relatively boring story. I wanted to go to college and I couldn't because working a cop shift and that sort of a thing. And so that's when the first Gulf War broke out. And to make what's otherwise a really long story short, I went into the military and I was recruited in for special forces, essentially. And so I went on 
initially as a paratrooper, infantry paratrooper. And I went on to U.S. Army Special Forces. I had a lot of fun doing that and traveling around the world and doing that work and got badly injured and had to come home. And when I came home, I decided, okay, now it's time to finish the degrees. And then I did actually finished my undergrad. I had never finished my undergraduate degree, went on to grad school, was working toward my first PhD in psychology. I wasn't getting the math there for what I wanted because I really wanted to understand human behavior individually and collectively, but empirically, not just sort of anecdotally. And so uh, I pursued a second track in mathematics to get work toward a second PhD in mathematics in parallel. I got really lucky. I got into some great postdoctoral programs and won a couple, uh, was awarded a couple of National Science Foundation fellowships. So I got to do my work at a consortium at Harvard and MIT. And then I did some work at Columbia, some at NYU. I was doing the degree at CUNY at the City University of New York, very open ecosystem, if you will. And so then I got selected to do a NATO Advanced Study Institute at the University of Moscow, of all places, Moscow State University. And so I did some of that work there, finished all my graduate degrees, and there I was, you know, educated. Educated. (laughs) That's an incredible story. Let just, well, I don't even know if I can recap. Homeless at nine, employed uh, as a teenager, finds your way to a vocation which began with being a computer and then through civil service to military service and then back to your education, which ended up becoming so much more right than where you initially started with getting your, oh, getting your PhD. Fair, I never really turned my back on, on computing. I, I hated the job. I hated being in a, there wasn't even a cubicle. We were basically at, I didn't actually even have a desk. I had a chair. Uh, <laughs> it actually, it became a big thing because I put my name on the back of the chair because it was my chair. Your and chair. Wheel so I could move it, which was great. But I never walked away from computers. I loved that work. And in the early 80s, I was a hacker. And when that movie came out, War Games, I was the one watching it and saying, you know, he got the really cute girl. And I thought, oh, I really got to get back into computers. And I stayed in throughout. I, I did work in that arena. Even while I was a cop, I did work on, that was sort of the birth of NCIC and CGIS and, and some of the other databases we had and, and facial, not facial recognition, but using the machine to create composite images of what suspects might look like. So instead of an artist, we did it on a Mac. And, uh, doing a lot of the database work that and this was the early years you know edgar todd had just really done some uh of his seminal work in what became sql structured query language and so working with the databases and being able to digitize to some extent some of the police stuff did the same thing with emergency medical services but then when i went into the military even though when i was in the field you know it was you know helicopters and guns and you know running around and that kind of thing while we were in garrison I was one of the few people who was really computer savvy and ended up working with other branches of the United States government, those that have three letter agencies, three letters uh, in the name of their agency. And, what, that uh, cannot be named so that we yeah, don't exactly. want to end up on a no fly list. <laughs> exactly. And that's yeah, who I ended up going back to work for, as you know. Yeah. So when you got into the, call it the corporate America, if you will, I know you worked for the government for a while, as you said, we can't go, for various reasons, we can't really talk deep about that. And before we got on the show together, you said that you have a knack for taking something complex 
and making it super understandable. And you were sharing the example of helping your granddaughter at age nine or so understand uh, while you're making her grilled cheese about like natural language processing. (laughs) Yeah, we learned everything about them. I'll I'll tell you one better. I teach all the grandchildren when they are two, I start teaching them about ontologization and ontologies. And the way we do that is with grandpa's big bucks of buttons. Uh, <laughs> I have no I, idea what that is. <laughs> oh, I have. I'm, a, I'm grandpa and I have a big box of buttons. It's as complicated as that. And I literally, I have this big box of buttons. It's somewhere here in my office. Uh, huge. Uh, there it is. And uh, I take this box and I pour it out on the carpet. And I tell them when they're two, make piles for grandpa. And what do they do? At first, they like push them into piles, which is very nice. Uh, but that's fine. That's, uh, they've created a cluster, right? And that's cool. As they get older, when they come over to the house, I'll tell them, again, same instructions, make piles for grandpa. Now things get interesting. At first, they do colors. Then they may do shapes. Then they may do the number of holes in a button. Then they may do a combination. Ah, and what are they doing? They're creating ontologies. And as they start to get older, we teach them what that's really about and uh, do the same thing with everything. My, my granddaughter, my oldest granddaughter is almost 12 right now. She can probably go toe to toe with any data scientist out there. Because <laughs> you've taught the concepts in a way that they can really understand. And that's so- what I always tell my students, start with concepts, right? Get a conceptual understanding of what it is you're doing and what you're looking at. Then you can always, code is, I think it's malpractice to start from the command prompt. You know, that's why they made GitHub, right? <laughs> you have a starting place. And, and I think, look, it's essential that you learn how to code, but that's a different path, right? It's a different track. It's, I think of my, I'm a data scientist, mathematician, and psychologist. I think of those as distinct, but they converge. Uh, and so you have to refine those abilities on each one of those paths. So some big companies found you and you have those brand names on your resume. Time Inc. is a publishing company that people are probably familiar with, as well as Keurig, and coffee company. You were at the time the largest publisher. The largest. And uh, yeah, I was their chief data officer and a member of the executive committee there helping to run a Fortune 50 company. How crazy is that? Yeah. And before yeah, that, yeah. Samsung. Well, I was curious if, to, for you to talk about that. Like, why did you go to big companies? What were you looking to help accomplish? Why did they have those positions? What were they looking to accomplish? Where And wh- how did you create value with the data? Did you help yeah. them monetize the data? You know, that's, that's a great question. And I'll tell you, when I got out of grad school, I went to work initially for the Gallup organization. And uh, I was a research director for them and, and a senior strategic consultant. And we helped them capitalize on and monetize a lot of their capabilities and bring real data, real analytics to some of the work they were doing, which turned out to be very worthwhile. From there, I got called back into government uh, subsequent to 9-11, and I ended up working for the Director of National Intelligence, and I worked for all those agencies that, you know, we, we won't go into detail, but I worked for CIA, DIA, DOD, DHS, FBI, MOUSA, anybody that matters, <laughs> and building most of those capabilities for about a decade. And uh, uh, very gratifying work. A lot of the work is, is still in place and, and still help keeping people safe. Uh, uh, feel really uh, proud about the work my teams and I did. I'd be happy to tell you what I can about some of that sometime. Most of it, a lot of, some of it has been declassified. <laughs> uh, and I can talk about some of that. But from there, 
after I left government, um, I was courted back into the private sector. And what I found was, you know, I, I tell my friends and students, I spent the first part of my career as a data scientist looking for serial killers, and the last part looking for people who really like serial, and it's pretty much the same thing. <laughs> it, it, the algorithms, the math doesn't care what the target is, right? And so I found I was just as able to find um, lunatic terrorists as I was, um, you know, moms who really like taking pictures of their children, which is exactly one of the early cases we worked on, and in fact, used the same algorithms. We used Cajonan-type neural networks uh, to be able to locate them and pinpoint them on maps. Uh, and I found a lot of this transition very effectively. And so I was working initially, working with some of the big uh, digital media marketing companies, Digitas and the, one of the publicist companies and some of the you know, other big firms. Uh, and that uh, is what sort of got me back into the commercial space. And then I was very actively recruited by Samsung to become their chief data scientist and to enable um, not just their technology, uh, but also their capabilities and how they could leverage and capitalize on data. And in fact, when I was, uh, the guy who recruited me, uh, Dr. Mark Ramsey, brilliant guy, he's got like 37 patents to his name. Uh, just a fun guy too, uh, by the way, side note, he keeps a, uh, a racing Porsche and a Lamborghini Countach in his garage. He's like that guy. Uh, <laughs> that also guy. a PhD, right? So um, <laughs> we got along great. And so he brings me in and he said, you know, Samsung technologically space age, but from a data perspective, they're somewhere in the early mid 1980s. And he wasn't kidding. It, people would be shocked at how obsolesced the approach is that most even of these big big companies not the fang companies i mean they they have their act together but most of the rest of the fortune 500 and i've worked with most of them by now uh most of them you would be shocked at how behind the curve they are and when you think about you know there's that chestnut that uh in this economy data is the new oil data is uh, and we have all become, all companies are now data companies. The most valuable assets are found in our data. Well, it turns out that's all true. Uh, we really are only as good as the data we have, but more importantly, um, uh, I, I had this unfortunate experience of being quoted accurately by the press and, and the Wall Street Journal asked me about this once and I told them, it's not the size of the, your data, it's what you do with it that counts. Uh, and I, I find that most organizations didn't know, don't know how to capitalize on that data. And my favorite example, I'm sorry to ramble here, but um, when I went to Time Inc. Uh, and I, I was courted there very uh, aggressively by the CEO, uh, Joe Rep, who brilliant guy. Uh, he's the guy who basically brought AOL from being a garage band into the force of nature that it was. Uh, and that was Joe. Uh, don't believe what you read in the press. It was Joe. Uh, brilliant, visionary, very smart, very capable guy, and a very earthy, real guy. We got along great also. But he brought me in uh, because he said, you know, I, I am convinced, he told me, we have all these assets that are wasting away and we're doing nothing with them. And when I went and I talked to the rest of the senior executive team to decide whether or not I would take the job, one of the people I met with who, who were in us, uh, who, by the way, we ended up being very good friends, but um, was in charge of revenue, the chief revenue officer for timing, and said, I don't know what you're going to do here, frankly. We don't have any data, and we have no way really to capitalize it. And I said, well, you, you're the largest publisher in the world, right? And 
And if nothing else, you've been sending, I don't know, me, Money Magazine for 10 years, and then I changed that, and I moved my address, and now I have Southern Living. You know something about me. <laughs> and so how much can we impute from this data, and how much can we infer, and how much can we leverage from that? And what it ended up being, actually, was not just to serve Time, Inc., but almost more importantly, to give our customers, uh, the advertisers, better insight into their own customers than they had themselves as a consequence of our relationship with them and what they were looking at, what they were reading, those sorts of things. But then also to work with um, uh, my best friend there became uh, Norm Perlstein, who's one of the most regarded journalists in the world. Uh, and Norm was our chief content officer. So how do I give feedback to Norm to say, look, this story you wrote was brilliant and it'll probably win you, your guys a Pulitzer, but nobody's reading it. And so if part of our agenda, or let's face it, most of our agenda is attaching people to content and understanding what resonates and what doesn't and how and why and with whom, and not thinking of uh, audiences as being this monolithic beastie that we call audience and being able to segment them smartly without digressing into the you know superficial stereotypes of saying well you know um and i have to share this with you when i was back at samsung uh the president of the americas at the time who was uh what's the polite word for it? a moron uh <laughs> comes into a meeting one time and we were looking to increase our sales of smartphones to women and he said oh make them pink girls like pink dude Aww. Dude, <laughs> I, I was the one in the meeting. Dude, you're killing me. You're just you're killing me. You found other and, ways, I'm guessing. Yeah, he, he's, he's not there. Uh, well, the, the Uber CEO just went back to prison last week, which <laughs> tells me a lot about the culture of Samsung. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, the, the, the point I'm making is I have inordinate respect for most CEOs, right? I, I think you didn't get there by being a dummy. Uh, but most of these, men and women who make it to those ranks uh, did it in a different era and they did it in a different time and from a different perspective, right? Even Jack Welch, who was trained as an engineer, what was the name of his book, Leading from the Gut? You can't lead a modern organization from the gut. You have to be cognizant of the data and be empirically minded and be driven by the data. And I think we are the, the Sherpas. We are the translators. We're the folks who help connect that to the strategy of the organization and what it's attempting to accomplish and achieve. That's in large part what I did. I think that's really important also to underscore for people listening who are in a company and they're thinking about their business and thinking, what hidden assets might I have that can unlock value? One of those things is, is the data. And there's a, there's a pretty cool saying, I don't know who the original person who said it was, but you know, you're not necessarily selling the quarter inch drill bit, you're selling the quarter inch hole. Quarter inch hole. That's the quarter inch hole. And, and so for a company like Time Inc. or other companies that ultimately they know something about their data is informing and their data has value. And how can they productize that service, if you will? And I want to use that as a transition to talk about what you're doing currently with your company. Let's talk about your company, which is called Protected by AI, uh, which some might find to be an oxymoron if they're scared about <laughs> if they're scared of AI. So you probably need to unpack the name a little bit about what you're doing and who you're protecting. And tell us, you know, what made you start your own company? Did you have an entrepreneurial gene in you? 
What made this get to the forefront in your in your life? Yeah, you know, I for years and years I've invested in small companies. I've sat on I can't tell you how many boards over the years. I'm still one of the judges for the Alchemist Accelerator in Silicon Valley. I was on Samsung's Open Innovation Center. I was part of that organization. But I've uh, and I'm an angel investor and in, in venture and I was recently on the board of a private equity venture capital fund where we uh, uh, made some substantial investments. But, uh, and so I've always had this attachment to entrepreneurs and entrepreneurialism. The reason we decided to start Protected by AI, however, is uh, for a little bit of a different reason. Um, uh, my co-founder, Brian Gallagher, is former uh, Secret Service. And he actually uh, ran the nuclear, biological, and chemical response team out of the White House for about a decade. Uh, so the inauguration, he was back and forth on the phone. It's making him crazy when he knows Joe Biden very well. And when Biden would go over to see Al Roker, he's like, stop doing that. But uh, <laughs> uh, he and I met uh, on a, uh, a Jack Bauer moment kind of a story. And it's actually declassified. I'd be happy to tell you about it sometime. But literally, and ended with saving the life of the president and all that. And, you know, the peasants rejoice. It was very cool. Um, well, Brian has been an international serial entrepreneur for years since he left the Secret Service. And he decided that in his mission to help protect, and that's what he does, and that's what he's done, is protect people, property, places, and profits. He comes uh, not quite as dire as my upbringing, but close. Uh, his father became bankrupt uh, in his company when they were very young. They ended up living in his aunt's basement. And uh, really, these challenging economic circumstances made him realize that protecting people is not just about protecting them physically. It's about protecting their, their financial well-being as well. And so while he was starting up the idea of this company, he said, you know, if he's going to be able to help people, he needs to really be able to give them the capabilities they need to succeed. And how do you do that through technology, right? And being able to give them the technology logical capabilities that will help them. And that comes from now increasingly artificial intelligence and in that area in general. And so he, uh, as he tells the story, he did a Google search for, you know, if I'm going to make these investments and do this, let me find the world's leading thinker in this. And he said, I was Googling. He's like, hey, I know that guy. <laughs> and there he you calls were. me up. And at the time I was sitting on a couple of boards and I was bored and he knew it. And he said, why don't you come back in and we'll help save people. Well, what do you mean? And that's what I really love about what we do. At our company right now, we're about augmenting human intelligence to protect and advance the economic interests of companies and countries. That's sort of the tagline, but in plain English, here's what we do, honestly. We build slingshots. And we teach David how to use them to fight Goliath. That's what we do. What we do is we work with these small and mid-sized companies that don't have the budget that I had at Samsung or Time Inc. or with the government. But in order to survive, let alone thrive, in this turbulent, crazy times we're living in, how do you compete? How do you remain viable? How do you uh, go toe-to-toe, -to -toe. It, it's almost analogous to what would you have done in the early 1900s if you didn't have electricity in your company, right? September 4th, 1882, Edison electrifies one square mile of Manhattan, and within 
five years, uh, either you have electricity or you're out of business. That's what we're seeing now, but with artificial intelligence, machine learning, IoT, analytics, uh, data science in general, these capabilities. So how could we make these things affordable uh, and accessible to small and mid-cap companies? And could we do that? And we did. And so we've been inordinately successful over the last year. We work with, uh, now we're back, we work with the US government, of course, but most of our work is with companies that could never otherwise afford those kind of budgets. And we're even supporting entire countries. Uh, we, uh, right now, uh, on the African continent, we're working with South Africa, we're working with a couple of other countries around the world to be able to say, in, in South Africa as an example, help their, in their mission to fight fraud, waste, abuse, corruption, and ensure the equitable distribution of resources. Well, you can't do that without cutting edge tech, right? And so we not only build those slingshots, uh, you know, for, for David to fight Goliath, uh, we show them how to use them. And so the model we have, we talk about, uh, we address four factors with everyone we work with. And by the way, we have a book that we're working on, I should be typing on right now, uh, coming out soon. And it talks about those four factors are helping them with their strategy, their human capital, their insights they need to lead and to understand their market and their technology. And so to our mind, you need strategy, human capital, insights, technology. You have to know your S-H-I. That's <laughs> is that the, the title of the book you have to know what your uh know your strategy <laughs> human capital insights and technology <laughs> gotta have a mnemonic that works <laughs> yeah, there you go so you mentioned you're a grandfather so here you are an entrepreneur and i'm guessing you're over you're over 50 i won't ask your age <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> call it your back half of your career and here you are starting a new business that hurt uh, a little bit okay and <laughs> am I being kind? Yeah. No, but I think that that in and of itself is pretty interesting. I mean, obviously, you're at a cutting edge of a lot of technology you've been working with a lot of years, but starting a business from scratch is not easy. And so would you say that you were kind of coming out of a retirement? You said you were bored. You were serving on boards. You were bored. Were, yeah. you, were you in sort of a retirement phase? And then this is now post-retirement. You're in a startup. This is kind of crazy. I thought I was going to be in retirement, but uh, I, I, I'm not the guy who retires. Uh, and, and I think nowadays, very few people are. The idea of retirement in the classic sense, just, uh, I, I think um, I had a period of time when I was injured, when I was when I left the military and uh, I couldn't walk. Uh, I was, you know, bedridden. And uh, I was not in a mindset to really engage myself. And I could feel my mind starting to atrophy. I truly could. Uh, after a couple of months of, you know, just watching TV, and, and this is even before social media, uh, I, I basically watched, you know, stupid TV and did not much of anything else for a couple of months. And I could feel my brain starting to decay, uh, starting to get older and, and slower. And and that's what happens to us. You know, I've uh, we'll, we'll talk another time about uh, some wonderful work that's been done in neurophysiology uh, that actually starts with a, a, a cloister of nuns in Mankato, Wisconsin. It's a very cool story. And it turns out that that old myth that uh, you inevitably head toward senility and Alzheimer's and cognitive deficiencies and defects and deficits, total myth. Your brain continues to grow new dendritic pathways, new neuronal connections throughout your life, so long as you train it. It's like going to the gym. 
right? But you have to stress it and you have to keep pushing it and you have to keep exercising, right? The same as literally as a physical workout and it is physical, it's biologic, right? It's physiologic. And so for me, the idea of sitting on the porch or playing shuffleboard, I, I'm going to kill myself after a couple of weeks. And more importantly, my wife would kill me after a couple <laughs> of weeks. And in fact, when I retired for the first time, uh, I it was just sitting around the house and she comes into my office. And it's a really big house. Uh, so I don't bother her, but she comes up to my office and says, go back to work. You're driving me crazy. <laughs> I can't stand you just being home. But that's how you're wired. That does not surprise me at all. There are probably people listening who are thinking, oh, I, I might want to sell my company, but I don't know what I would do next. And then there's other people that think, oh, I know what I would do next. I, I have X and Y and Z planned. And I think of it as sort of having a portfolio in life where, you know, you're serving on boards, you're, you're doing nonprofit work, you're giving back to the community, you have your family, and you have your work that challenges you and makes you happy. And I guess it leads me to my next question is, how do you define success? And I think the answer is your question. And that's exactly right. It's how do you define success, right? And, and I think we, we get taught at a young age, unfortunately, particularly in Western culture, that it's some brass ring, that it's some, you know, if I had, if only I had, right? If only I had, you know, a million dollars, $10 million, $50 million, uh, and I got to tell you, you know, I, I started out very poor and I'm not so much poor right now. Uh, and so what? You know, it turns out you, you hit a number and what more do you want? How many houses can you live in at one time? How many cars can you drive at one time? I have a lot of motorcycles. I like motorcycles. Uh, I have a lot of toys and that you can say, uh, but so what? You know, you can take it all away. To me, that isn't success. Success is being happy with who you are. Success is, you know, everyone is alive, but very few people actually live. Very few people uh, engage their life. One of the, the promises or the promise, the ultimate uber promise I made to myself when I was nine years old, and it was actually interesting, I was just having this conversation with a colleague, uh, he was talking about he grew up in the Middle East and his father was beaten because he didn't have enough money to pay back the loan sharks and all this. And he said, and he, uh, and it was a terrible story. And he said, you know, I had to walk to my uncle's house in the snow four miles. I was like nine years old and uh, vowed to myself I would be rich one day. And what I told myself when I was nine is that I would live every day. That uh, I, I always hate that thing, live every day as if it's your last because that's crazy. Who would pay bills or mow the lawn? <laughs> I would never take out the trash again. Um, but you should live every day as if there is a last, right? As if it is going to end one day. And so to me, success is about experiences. Success is about relationships. Success is about enjoying what you're doing and why you're doing it. The reason I'm not retired, the honest to goodness, look you in the eye reason is I know exactly how professional ball players must feel. These are men and women who, if they weren't getting paid to do that for millions of dollars, they would probably work at the factory and do it on the weekend because they love it, right? I love what I do. I have so much fun. I tell the data scientists who work for me, and I've hired more data scientists and AI engineers and coders than probably anyone on the planet, truly. Uh, when you consider Time Inc. and Samsung and certainly the government, uh, I tell them, if this isn't fun, if you're not looking more forward to Monday mornings than Friday afternoons, 
man, you're doing the wrong thing. Because you can always make money. Uh, it turns out at least making enough to meet your needs ain't that challenging, particularly in the United States of America. Uh, I think it is in a lot of places around the world, and I pay that short shrift for a second. But we tend to be goldfish, right? We grow to the size of our bowl. And now, you know, I'm making, uh, I, I, I distinctly remember when uh, I went to grad school. And remember, I'd only been a paramedic and a police officer and a soldier until then. So I never made money. And my wife, uh, Angie, made way more than me. Uh, and when I was in grad school, I got talking to a couple of people and I told her, honey, do you know that if I really dig deep, I might make $100,000 some year? Wow. <laughs> and we were both like, no, no. no, don't be ridiculous. You'd never make money like that. And now, you know, a starting data scientist right out of school can make, you know, multiples of that, uh, let alone if they have some real expertise in AI and machine learning. And now with the democratization of education as a consequence of MOOCs and, and resources and Udemy and all these things that are available to people, uh, and, and increasingly, I think one of the bizarre collateral positive things that came out of the Trump administration was cracking down on immigrants and H-1B visas and those sorts of things. Well, you add COVID to that, and we've come to realize we can virtualize talent. People can be anywhere now. They can get educated however they want, take a non-traditional path. And if they have the inclination and the interest to get into this particular profession, make a damn lot of money and have a great time doing it, all it really takes is your willingness to do that. But then, and I'm sorry to, to, to be so lonely on this, but when we're talking about success in that regard, I'm always reminded uh, of a friend who is uh, very successful professionally, but he's also a great musician, great guitarist, and he sings beautifully. And so we were with one of our friends one day, and and Steve was just you know fiddling around on the guitar, just playing a little bit. And uh, by the way, this guy who was formerly, he just retired, he was an executive for the Federal Reserve Bank. So I mean, yeah, I had a real career. And, but he also plays at gigs on the weekend and, and he's still <laughs> around the guitar. And this other friend of ours said, man, I would do anything to play like you, Steve. I, I, I would love to play like you. And Steve said, no, you wouldn't. I said, what do you mean? No, I'm telling you, I would. He said, no, you wouldn't. Because you know why I can play like this? Because I play like this, because I played every day. I practiced every day. And you know why I did that? Because I love it. Because I really love it. That's success. That's right? success. Steve when you find something you're so good at. Gig, but that's success. Right. Well, you've got an amazing background. I really appreciate you going deep and sharing even back to when you were nine and homeless, because it really helps, I think, set the tone for who you are, JT, which is really an amazing person. In my last my couple of questions, <laughs> and your wife, Angie, is there anything else that you can share about favorite sayings or mantras about entrepreneurship or leadership that help drive you forward? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, one of my mentors gave me some advice when I was very young that stuck with me. He said, let me tell you the secret to achieving anything you want in your life. Three things, ready? And, and by the way, absolutely not kidding. This has been the guide of my life. I'm going to give you this for free. This is really what changed my life. So there's only three things you have to do. Number one, decide what it is you really want. With absolute particularity and clarity, get a vision in your mind. Not, I want to be successful. I want to be, no, 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 no. 
you say to yourself, exactly, I want this. Make it a smart goal, right? Specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, time constrained. That's what I want. Step one, know what you want. Step two, find out how much it costs. What's the sweat you'll have to put in? What's the time you'll have to put in? What's the tuition you'd have to pay? What books do you have to read? Who do you have to work with? Who do you have to meet? Step two, find out what it costs. Step three, pay that price. That's it. That's pay it. the price. Yeah. Pay the find price. Find out what you want. Find out what it costs and pay the price. Pay the price. Great words to live by, aspire to. JT, thank you so much for joining me today. If people want to find you online, how do they do that? You can go to our website at, interestingly enough, protectedby.ai. There you go. There's a mug. Right there, there it is. And you'll find me there. I am occasionally on LinkedIn. I have a love-hate relationship with LinkedIn, so sometimes I'm on, sometimes I'm not. But you can find me through my site, through my writings, uh, through the books. And uh, by the way, anyone who's aspiring into this profession, drop me a note. I leave time open every Friday to talk to people who are either aspiring data scientists, mathematicians, psychologists, professionals, AI, people who are interested in artificial intelligence. On the other hand, either aspiring or struggling entrepreneurs. And so if you're having challenges, if, if you just need someone to talk to, uh, that's what I do. I, I'm happy to have the conversation. We'll find a time. Thank you so much, JT. It was great to talk with you today. It was great to talk with you. Take care. Innovation, transition, growth. Easy to say, but hard to do. If you're an entrepreneur facing these challenges, I get it. I work with businesses from small to big to achieve your vision. Visit smalldotbig.com to learn more. I'd love to connect with you. Subscribe to Succession Stories. And if you enjoy the show, please share a rating and review. Thanks for listening.